you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter number one. We're going to break briefly from our series in the Sermon on the Mount to focus our attention on the incarnation of Christ, on the Christmas season, and uh, what this season of the year is intended to celebrate, what it means to us to say that unto us a Savior is born. If I were to ask you about your favorite Christmas-related New Testament passage, there'd probably be a great number of you would say Luke chapter 2, that passage that's sort of etched in our memories of, of Christmas. There's almost a nostalgia about that passage now. Even if you don't know the book and reference to Luke chapter 2, even if you're just in the culture, not even a Christian because of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know Luke chapter 2, right? <laughs> Some of you might say that Matthew 1 would be your favorite Christmas passage, the Emmanuel text where we're granted some insight into the confusion that must have been incredible for Joseph and for Mary as Joseph is on the brink of putting Mary, his uh, wife, to be away secretly. The Bible says that an angel reveals to him that the child in her womb was conceived of the Holy Spirit. God begins to mark the path of young Joseph and young Mary. It's a precious, precious passage. But my favorite is John 1. Now, although we get the chance to see uh, the Christmas story through the lens of Luke and Matthew or through the life experience of Joseph and Mary in those other gospel accounts, here the curtain is drawn back and we get to see the incarnation of Jesus from heaven's perspective. I want us to focus on the truths, in many cases, fundamental, elementary types of truths, but truths that are intended to surprise and astonish us at the great grace that God has shown us. There are some attributes of God's character, some of the things that God has done through history that we become so familiar with that I don't know that they still astonish us or surprise us or amaze us the way that they used to. And I, I hope that you'll be careful as we study through this passage to be amazed all over again at the lengths to which God has gone to save us a people all his own. If you found your way to John chapter 1 and verse number 1, I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In verse 10, speaking of Jesus here, John records, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We'll not look at all of those 14 verses in the time that we have together, but I I do want to ask and answer a couple of key questions of the text that we've just read. One, I want us to look into the character of Jesus, to ask of the text who Jesus is, and to celebrate together what the text teaches us about his character, about his attributes. And then in closing this morning, to think for a few minutes together about what it is exactly that we celebrate during the Christmas season. John 1 and 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. I believe John is intentional in his use of the language of in the beginning, uh, meaning to allude to Genesis 1 and 1. What John is indicating for us here is that as far back as human history goes, in fact, in the foundations of the world, Jesus was there. Later in the same gospel in John chapter 17, as Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, he prays, and now, Father, glorify me with yourself in your presence with the glory which I had with with you before the world existed. This is John's biblical way of saying to us that Jesus Christ is eternal, that he always was and he always will be. This is, again, the most basic, the most elementary of Christian doctrines, and yet it's one that will absolutely break your brain in trying to comprehend it. When did Jesus begin? He did not. He always was. When will Jesus end? He will not. He always will be. This is kind of a doctrinal issue, the kind of thing thing that I think sometimes Christian folk are quick to dismiss. Sometimes we fail to see the value in teaching Christian doctrine and preaching Christian doctrine. But think of all of the consequences of this teaching. Think of what this means for me and for you. This means that Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the anchor of of our soul, is a strong and steady presence in our life. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore in this topsy-turvy world where things are changing so much from one minute to the next. Jesus is steadfast. Jesus is steady. Jesus is stable in his faithfulness toward us. He doesn't change. In him there is no variation, no shadow of turning. Jesus is everlasting. In the beginning was the Word. And John goes on to note, the word was with God. There's a a, a great deal of content packed into this language of word or logos in the Greek text. This is sort of a philosophical way of looking at all of the wisdom that the world has to offer. Or in a Jewish setting, all of the wisdom of God. In the beginning, Jesus was all of the wisdom of God, all of the wisdom the world had to offer. Maybe we'll look further at that concept of logos or the word in the next couple of weeks as we continue to look at John 1. For now, it's sufficient to know that the word is a direct reference to Jesus. 
we might read the verse, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. That is that the eternal Jesus, the eternal Son of God is the second person, not the second part, but the second person of the Trinity. He was with God. Our English rendering of the verse is somewhat plain compared to what is intended by John in its fullness, I think. The language there for being with God is more than just being in proximity to God. We might translate the phrase as he was before God or he was face to face with God. It's more than they're just being close to one another. The idea is that they were in tender fellowship one with another. In the foundations of the world, in the beginning, John said, the Father and the Son enjoyed Sweet fellowship within the Godhead. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, not more than God, not less than God. He is with God. And then in the next phrase, John notes, not only was he with God in the sense that he was with the Father, but he was God. That is not to say that Jesus was only God in the past tense. Here what we're doing is we are reflecting on the existence of Jesus before his earthly ministry. And there, there, there should be some suspense building as we work through the passage and have revealed for us later that Jesus, for all that he enjoyed in times past, has intervened in human history by clothing himself in flesh and coming to dwell in our midst. Jesus is God. Not only was he God before his earthly ministry, he is God at this very moment at the right hand of the Father, enjoying personhood within the Trinity. I share this story often to sort of press the importance of understanding something of the doctrine of the Trinity. I had a, a pastor friend who was preaching at a Christian high school several years ago now, and he, he preached on the divinity of Jesus and stated in that sermon emphatically that Jesus is God. And for the rest of the week, the phone rang off the hook at the Christian school from concerned parents who did not understand the doctrine and were somehow concerned that he had taught something that was out of step with Christian orthodoxy. This is a direct quote from the Bible, brothers and sisters. Jesus is God, and we may rest in that reality. Now think again for those of you who may be naysayers with regards to the preaching of Bible doctrine. What difference does this make for you? Well, it highlights the fact that God himself has come down to seek us out. Whereas every other world religion has established a system whereby we might labor toward God. Our God has invaded human history. He has come down to seek us out. God has done for us what he has required of us. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is the eternal son of God. Jesus is indeed God. In verse 2, the Bible says, he was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus is the creator God. Nothing was made or will be made that was not made through him. We owe our origins and our existence to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the creator of all things. Now think again. 
what difference it might make for us understanding Jesus as the creator God. Stephen said it earlier in an earlier service, maybe earlier in this service as well, that what we celebrate in the Christmas season is not merely the birth of a king, but the birth of the king. When we celebrate the birth of King Jesus, we celebrate the birth of a king, capital K. Being creator God means all of the benefits of being creator God come with that status. That is, he is Lord over all he has created. And he is Lord with a capital L. Jesus rules and reigns over all the earth. Indeed, he truly has the whole world in his hands. So when you're tempted in your anxiety to be troubled, to run around busily hoping you can do something to, to alleviate your stress. You may rest in Jesus who again holds the whole world in his hands. Jesus is the creator of all things. All things were created through him. Now in verse 4 the Bible says life was in him. We might initially assume that this reference to life is reflecting on Jesus as creator God, that this speaks to physical or material life that abides within Jesus. But it seems clear as we read on in verses 4 and 5 that spiritual life is what is suggested here. Life was in him, the Bible says, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. This is a reference here to spiritual life. Spiritual life abides in Jesus. When that spiritual life is manifest, it does so, it is so in the form of light. And even the darkness of this world could not overcome the light that emanates from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Spiritual life is in Jesus. Think of that for just a moment. The only source of spiritual life that can be found within the universe is in Jesus. This is sort of a, a deeply theological, somewhat philosophical way of saying what Jesus says later in the same gospel when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. The only source of spiritual life for a people dead in sins and trespasses is Jesus Christ. And what follows in verses 4 and 5, again, the Bible says life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. The, the, the themes that John employs in our passage, passage suggest not only does he intend to allude to Genesis 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he also seems to intend to allude to Genesis 3. Where Adam and Eve partake of forbidden fruit, sin against God, fall in their sinfulness, and with them all of humanity likewise fall. In Genesis 3, all of mankind is overcome by, overwhelmed by darkness. But the Bible says here that the spiritual life in Jesus, when expressed, is the light of men. And even the darkness of all humanity could not overcome that light. From the time of Adam's sin in the garden, we were overcome by, overwhelmed by darkness. 
From time to time, I hear someone speak of some kind of inner light that is to abide within humanity, and we're looking for an opportunity for that inner light to reveal itself. That could not be further from the picture the Bible paints of humanity. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We are not partly bad and partly good. We are entirely bad. Indeed, we are entirely dead, and only spiritual life in Christ can awaken us from that dead state. But the life, the light that emanates forth from Jesus is such that even a darkness that has cast its shadow over all of humanity could not overcome this light. Jesus is the only source of spiritual power that can overcome the darkness in us. Now make no mistake, there are competing spiritual powers at work in the world around us. Sometimes as I see other religious expressions or even pseudo-religious expressions that are supposed to be spiritual, I'm aware of the fact that many people are dismissive of that as though people are just behaving foolishly. What always concerns me is that I'm convinced there is a real spiritual influence in many of those experiences. There are competing spiritual powers at work in the world around us. But there can be no question about the fact that the only source of spiritual power that overcomes the darkness in us is Jesus Christ. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness indeed cannot overcome it. Think again of what this means for you. Think of the consequences of this observation for your personal life. It doesn't matter what your addiction is, what your issue is, what your sinful tendency is. There is sufficient power in Christ to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us. There is liberation from the bondage of sin through the power of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Jesus is eternal the second person of the Trinity. He is indeed divine, the creator of all things, the source of all spiritual life, and the only source of spiritual power that can enable us to overcome the darkness in us. This is who he is. Now fast forward past verses 6 through 9, which discuss the ministry of John the Baptist, to verse number 10. By now, the suspense should be building, right? If you can imagine yourself for just a moment reading John 1 for the first time. Here we have described for us God. And now verse 10 says, he was in the world. Y'all tracking with me? God came down. And just to note that we are supposed to be amazed in awe and astonished at what we've read. John says, he was in the world and the world was created through him. The world he made. He came down and dwelt in its midst. The world he created, he came to reside there. God came down. He was in the world. This is truly astonishing. I, I sometimes find it comedic how people get excited about a celebrity visiting or maybe a politician and people get all worked up and they want to get as close as they can and they want to be recognized and visited with and affirmed in some way by the presence of that person. And yet the Bible says that Jesus came down. 
About once a year, NASA tells us that they found some indication of some life form on some far-off planet, and we all tune in to see them show a pile of space dust and what is presumed to be some bacteria, an indication of life at some point in time. We're fascinated by, greatly intrigued by the idea that somewhere outside of the world as we know it, there might be some existence of, of life. And yet the Bible tells us here that God, that God, that God came down. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. The world he made, he came to visit. And then John notes in the remainder of verse 10, yet the world did not recognize him. You know, he'll get to our shame later and that he was rejected and despised by men. But, but here, the focus seems to be the lowly manner in which Jesus came. He didn't come the first time with great pomp and circumstance. He did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came as a servant. What a great and faithful Savior we have. He came like unto us. He didn't come as this unidentifiable, unidentifiable person, this force existing in the world around us. He came like unto us. The Bible says in verse 14, the word became flesh. He clothed himself in flesh like unto us that he might fulfill the righteous obligation of the law intended for us, that he might die the death made necessary by the law on our behalf. We didn't need some far-off distant sacrifice. We needed the fulfillment of the law, one like unto us to die as our substitute. Christ in his absolute perfection clothes himself in flesh and takes up residence among us. Jesus came into the world, clothed himself in flesh, and took up residence. That is, Jesus is our Emmanuel. In Matthew 1, that passage we refer to in, our, in the beginning of our time together, God said, you will call his name, Joseph, call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And indeed, Jesus was and is our Emmanuel, God with us. Drawing near in his physical presence during his earthly ministry, he was quite literally there, Emmanuel. But his, his life, his sinless life, and his sacrificial death, and his victory in resurrection is the assurance of a continuing Emmanuel presence even with us. God, by the work of Jesus, continues to abide with his people, with us, even this morning, abiding within us who have believed and trusted on him. He is our Emmanuel, even in the now, although imperfectly, right? We have this veil of flesh. We are continuing to wrestle against the flesh even as the Spirit enables. There's some imperfection about the presence of God in our life, the product of our sinful nature and the difficulties of life in the here and now. But one day, that Emmanuel presence will be brought to perfection. And what was overturned by the curse of sin in the garden will be restored once more so that it might be said that in the cool of the day, God comes to walk in the midst of the garden and enjoy fellowship with his 
his people. We will be with him, and he will be our God in a city that awaits. Christ is our Emmanuel. He is the guarantee of a continuing and one day perfected Emmanuel presence in our life. God indeed is with us through his son, Jesus Christ. John says the word became flesh and took up residence among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In spite of our rejection, here's what I want you to see. In spite of our rejection, by faith, Jesus made us his own. Now think of this. God came down. He was not well received. In fact, he's rejected. In the hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion, the multitudes did not sing songs of praise. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. And in spite of that rejection, by faith, he has made us his own. We're going to look at these verses in greater detail in the weeks ahead. But I want us to read now verses 11 through 13, and I, I want you to hear what is described here. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God who were, in Jesus' words in John 3, born again. To all who received him, to those who believed on his name, to those who were born again, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. In the early 20th century, liberal theologians began to coin the terminology of the, the universal fatherhood of God. And under that banner, they began to talk about all of humanity as the children of God. And we still use that in the culture today. We talk about everyone being God's children. And it is true that all of us owe our existence, we all owe our origin to the work of God. And in that sense, I suppose, are children of God. What John is pressing here and what must be understood, what must be understood with crystal clarity is that the only way of being justifiably, reasonably, truly referred to, enjoying the privilege of being called a child of God is by receiving Jesus, believing on his name, being born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. If you have not been born of God, you are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. And those are the words that Jesus chose to use within his earthly ministry. If you are to have any hope of heaven, if you are to receive the forgiveness of your sin, if you've any hope whatsoever of overcoming even the presence of sin in your life, the sin that easily entangles us, you must be born again. Born not of blood, nor of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of faith that only the Father can give. You must believe on his name in this moving way, this way that radically impacts the way we live our life, the way referred to here as the new birth. You must be born again. 
It is an incredible privilege to be called the child of God. A gift afforded us by the Father, through the Son, imparted by the work of His Holy Spirit. That, brothers and sisters, is what we celebrate this Christmas season. Aren't you glad for God's great gift? Now, this will be our focus next week, so I won't spend a great deal of time here, but I, I do want to press here toward the beginning of the Christmas season. That there will be people in your life, there are people in your life all, all, all around us who have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't mean that they, just, that they don't just not know Jesus in a spiritual or salvific way, meaning that they're not saved. I mean, they don't know enough about who Jesus is to be saved if there were to be some desire to know him. There are people around you who do not know about or do not know in a saving way Jesus Christ. I have been to places serving in short-term missions where you could readily have conversations with people who had never heard the name of Jesus, knew nothing about the gospel, and yet they knew the Christmas season. They knew that this is the time of the year when we celebrate various things and Americans spend a lot of money giving gifts to one another, and maybe even they spend lots of money giving gifts to one another. Presumably far more modest amounts of money than we would spend here in America, but there's the exchanging of gifts nonetheless. And you would tend to think that that kind of experience would only be the kind of experience found around the world. But I want you to know, I want you to know that that is the experience of untold thousands of people in close proximity to our church. I have lived in the state of Mississippi for all of my life and yet managed to get up to 20, nearly 20 years old before I ever knew enough about Jesus to be born again. And those people exist in your life as well. You'll have Christmas dinners with them. You'll exchange gifts and pleasantries with them. You'll see them as you shop. There are people around you who are living, under an, who are living in a state of ignorance with regards to Jesus. And God has set the stage for us during the Christmas season to say to those who are far and to say to those who are near that the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That when we look to him by faith, he is gracious and loving to forgive us of our sin, to seal us for heaven, and to impart to us the presence of his Holy Spirit to overcome the sin within us. That, brothers and sisters, is the message of Christmas. Share it, church. Share it. Relish it. Worship around that idea. Talk about it with your family, with your kids. Even with other brothers who know the truth of the text, those who know the story best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. There's a sweetness in the gospel, even for those who have known it for years and years, to hear it again and again and again. And for those of you who don't know Christ, if you don't know him, come to him. He is as good as we've suggested and all the better. Taste and see that he indeed is good. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I was back home for a funeral service this week and uh, was just looking around. When you go home, when you were a mess like I was and you go home, especially when you go as close to home in so many ways as I was, 
you can be reminded in some pretty powerful ways of how gracious God is. I was just looking out across that gathering of people, and I would, I would count myself among the worst of those gathered there. And, and thinking about our pasts, some, some of those who'd spent years and years in state penitentiaries, years and years in bondage to addiction and substance abuse, years and years in bondage to all manner of sin. And yet God is doing some of the greatest things in their lives. There is hope and peace and newness and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. It does not matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from. The arm of our God has not been shortened that he may not save. He is powerful. Indeed, he is God and he is good. Come to him. Drink freely from the fountain of the water of life. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your son, for the truth of this passage and all that it means to me. God, thank you that what it means to me, it stands to mean the same, to have the same bearing, the same impact, the same consequences in the lives of those gathered here. God, we thank you that you are God, that you are good and you always do what is right. We celebrate this morning the great lengths to which you've gone to seek us out and to save us from our sin. Thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that it washes us white as snow. God, thank you for the new life, the new beginning, and the new birth that we have through the gospel. God, I pray that you'd save some right now in this service, that the skeptic, that the doubter, that the discouraged, that the addicted, the frustrated, the broken. God, I pray that they would humbly bow, even in this moment, give their heart and life to Jesus. God, that they would, in the words of John, receive you and be born again. God, grant it so. Grant the gift of faith, we pray. God, for the church, I pray that you would stir our affections that we would meditate on what you've done for us, God, how powerfully you've worked in our life to save us from our sin. Help us to never forget what we were before Christ. Remind us, Lord, that where we stand today is not the fruit, the product of our effort, but the work of your Holy Spirit. God, I, I, I pray that you would stir in us mercy and compassion and understanding for those around us. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear and hearts to feel for the lost around us this Christmas season. Stir great mercy and compassion in us, God, that we would see others the way you do. God, I pray that you'd give us the words to speak as we interact with them in conversation and otherwise, cards and gifts, God, help us to know how to be the hands and feet of Jesus this Christmas season. And may many come to faith in Christ as you mobilize your church within this community and among the nations. God, forgive us where we come short, where in our apathy we forget just how great you are. We commit these next moments to you, and I, I pray that our response to the reading and study of your word would be fitting a king. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.